ladies and gentlemen, transmitting direct from Lion's Den Studios in Los Angeles, California, Crew Studios and Danube Productions bring you The Conduit, bringing together motivated artists to share their experience and to pull back the curtain for a first-hand look at a life in the arts. Today our guest is guitarist, producer, studio owner, and mastermind behind Black Pumas, my buddy Adrian Quesada. So adjust your antenna, relax, and tune in. Your program is about to begin. All right, welcome everyone to episode 10 of The Conduit, a podcast where I sit down and talk to amazing, courageous people about making a living in the arts. Today, my guest is Adrian Quesada, a musician and producer behind bands like Grupo Fantasma, Ocote Soul Sounds, Echocentrics, Brownout, and for the last few years, the worldwide phenomenon with singer Eric Burton known as Black Pumas. But this is no overnight success. Adrian has been on his grind since I first met him years ago on tour via mutual friends. Adrian's always working, always striving, and always getting stuff done. Born in South Texas on a steady diet of hip hop, soul music, and Mexican culture, Adrian has collaborated with everyone from Prince, Jizza from Wu-Tang Clan, David Garza, and Los Lobos. Earned many awards and accolades, including a Grammy, and traveled the world a few times over. Above all, Adrian just loves what he does, and I'm so lucky he agreed to spend an hour with us today amidst his increasingly busy schedule. So sit back, relax, and have a listen to my conversation with Texas's own Adrian Quesada. Adrian Quesada, welcome to The Conduit, man. Thanks for hey. coming. How you doing, Dan? I'm good, man. I love your Soul Assassin's hat. Hey, thank you, man. <laughs> Always. DJ Muggs forever. Man, I just watched the Cypress documentary a couple nights ago. Oh, really I'm good. dying to see it, dude. I'm dying really to see good. it. I bet. I bet. They were such a huge influence on me, too, man. Mm -hmm. That first Cypress Hill record, boy. Mm-hmm. Well, so I want to get into it with you, man. Uh, this podcast, as you know, The Conduit, is all about making a living in the arts and you've done just that so um i want i always start with just where people came up and i know you were born in laredo and uh, close to monterey and san antonio mm -hmm. so i just wanted to talk about family life was anyone else musical what are your biggest memories about growing up in south texas and how did music play a part in all that you know, uh, my parents definitely, my family listened to music, but I wouldn't say that anybody was really particularly musical in my family. Okay. I didn't really have a lot of uh, uh, people in my family that played music. My, you know, I had like a cousin, an older cousin who was a skater and he played, uh, you know, he always played like in cool punk bands and he would always turn me on to cool music. But I mean, honestly, a lot of my, I was an only child for most of my life and I, a lot of uh, what really where I really got into a world of music was like, I'm from, you know, as, as, as are you as well, like for probably from the uh, MTV generation, you know, I just oh, watched yep. MTV, watched your own TV raps, watched 120 minutes and yep. that was it, you know? Yes, sir. So that was your, that was your musical family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's cool, man. And uh, well, so what in, what was the first instrument you saw getting played and who was playing it and what inspired you to pick something up and try playing yourself? Yeah, you know, or, uh, you know, like I said, I used to watch a lot of uh, MTV and obviously like guitar, you know, when you're at a young, impressionable age, like just looks cool. But I remember actually when I was uh, 
maybe 11 or 12, my dad out of nowhere encouraged, wanted me to take piano lessons. And I was okay, like, yeah. you know, getting into hip hop and like skating and I had my hair in my face. And I was like, man, piano's lame. <laughs> like, you know, I want nothing to do with piano. And he pushed me for a couple of years until I finally was like, all right, compromise. I'll, I'll play guitar. Guitar actually looks cool. And right. that's like one of my few regrets in life that I did not start piano <laughs> at 11 or 12 years old, you know, because like it's as you know, it's such a like a, the, the yeah. basis of you can do anything from there. So so I started playing yeah. guitar when I was about 13 with some formal lessons for a few years. But uh, but yeah, I had that opportunity. My dad like was the one that really wanted me to play piano. Oh, that's great. Man. I was yeah, young it's... and stupid, you know, regret that decision. <laughs> and uh, you you obviously you play piano and keys now too a little bit. Enough to get by, you know, enough to yeah, make no, it till you make it. Yeah. It's so hard. Like I'm kind of the same as you. Like, my parents didn't pressure me to play piano, but I've come to piano over the last like 10 years and mm -hmm. trying to get my crap together on it. And it's when you're decently good at one instrument and then coming back and having heard great keyboard players for so many years now, it's a little frustrating to try. And Absolutely, man. <laughs> oh, man. And do you do you primarily write on guitar or do you find yourself writing on keys, too? I actually have been pre uh, challenging myself to write on other instruments because, you know, there is a certain muscle memory that's ingrained from, you know, however many 30 years of playing guitar that that yeah. like I tend to kind of do the same things and I need yeah. to break out of that sometimes. So sometimes I'll force myself to write something on piano because something different actually comes out. Whereas like, yeah. it's hard to break out of that box with guitar because your body just muscles and your brain want to do the thing that you do, you know? So like, yeah. I, uh, I really, I even, I challenged myself. I just recently had some downtime in January and, nice. and was uh, experimenting with actually not, making just kind of little demos and just trying to write and make beats and stuff and and did it all with uh with like synths all with keys and oh, my cool. challenge to myself was like to not use the guitar at all like because i'm that's such <laughs> right. a like i know what to do with it but uh yeah and I, I was reading about this visual artist named deborah roberts and she was saying that when she tries a new style or when she wants to do something to challenge herself she forces uh, based off something an art teacher told her she's like i make 20 like if she's gonna try a new mm -hmm. style of sketching she'll force yeah. herself to do 20 because out of 20 a few good ones will come out so i did that i did a uh, oh. 20 synth tracks like all off analog synths and then i Sick. and then i kept that exercise going and man it was one of the most rewarding kind of cool thing you know like five of them don't suck you know but that's pretty good <laughs> out of 20 you know well, as we know, you got to just keep writing, man. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, sometimes they stay on the shelf and sometimes they turn into something amazing. So, and I've also learned, you know, like I uh, just never throw anything away, just file it away and come back to it. Yeah. Sometimes it's two years later, you're like, oh man, that's actually kind of dope. Like I thought that was yeah. the worst thing when I did it. But, right. I just had one that I did 25 years ago that got wow. synced for something. And I just met with the trumpet player who played on it to break him off some dough. And, uh, and uh, it was like, oh, my God, like 25 years later, we did this little song in a garage, you know, and it turned into something, you know, you never know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, so you're obviously known equally as much as a guitar player and a producer, and you play all kinds of instruments and stuff. And I wanted to know, have you always been as excited and interested in production as you have in play as you have in playing guitar? Yeah, I think, you know, I From definitely have, I have. And, you know, I just didn't know when I was really young, what a producer was. 
when yeah. I was in high school and I was really into NWA, I remember getting this keyboard and trying to uh, um, kind of like one of those like Casio Ratman kind of style things that had a little drum pad and like, yeah. and, uh, and I remember trying to recreate Dr. Dre things, but I didn't really know what that meant. I honestly just didn't know what a producer was. And even early on my first band um, in Austin or kind of my second band, Grupo Fantasma, which is a, a, a big Latin band with, you know, 10 yeah. plus members and, we uh and i had all these ideas in the studio and i just didn't know that that's what a producer was doing you know i just didn't know and then like i remember yeah. meeting an older friend who was kind of a mentor and he was telling me like well yeah that's you're producing the album and i'm like oh wow i didn't know that's what that was and then yeah you know i started to realize that i i like um i like the the bells and the whistles i like the overall like big picture of an album i like the the aesthetic and the direct like that and i'm like oh that's what i've been into this whole time you know yeah i i feel the same way i think that's why mm -hmm. we probably always hit it off because like mm -hmm. my dad played jazz so he was always sliding me west montgomery and like all these guitar players and i was like i don't know if i'm ever going to be like west montgomery mm -hmm. but i can put a good guitar part on a song and mm -hmm. i like how everything fits together and it sounds like you feel the same way yeah man it's a it's for sure Dang. Well, so what was the, do you remember the first thing you were like, I'm going to try and produce something? And, and what was it? The first, I can't remember. Yeah. I can't remember. It was the first album that I officially produced was a group of Fantasma album called uh, Sonidos Gold. And that one yeah. uh, was the first time where I told the band, like, you know, I kind of feel like I, you know, headed the production up yeah. already. And like, I, let's make it a, can we make it official and just make sure that, and also we just needed a, we needed a, a diplomatic presence in a 10 piece band. As you know what it's like with so many cooks in the kitchen. I was like, yeah. we also just need a person to be the deal breaker and to say, because sure. the horns want more horns and the percussion <laughs> wants more percussion. The guitarists want more guitar. And I'm like, we need, yeah. we need one person <laughs> to also just be come in and be, and make the decisions. And, uh, and yeah, that was a super rewarding experience to do that. And uh, learned a lot. I, I didn't engineer that when we were at an, friends uh, kind of a mentor's like amazing studio and we oh, yeah. and everything that that i threw out there he had the ca the capacity to do it uh, and the the knowledge the technical knowledge i remember telling him like playing him these old cuban records i'm like i love how it sounds like they're in this huge room and it sounds like you're in the room with them and right. he was like well let's try to not use any uh reverbs and just use rooms so we yeah. like we ended up using a little bit of spring reverb here and there but most and a tiny bit of plate in the mix but uh, ultimately we were like really trying to um get reverb like natural room reverbs and and that was yeah. something that we could do because we were in this awesome studio but, I, but it was the first time where i had an idea and the guy was able to execute it with no problem he's like oh yeah hell yeah let's Dang. let's do this yeah yeah, man. That's amazing. So what were, do you remember some of the first studios you worked in before you started, you know, doing it yourself, building your own studio? Yeah, that one uh, was, a, that one was, was a studio called Wire Recording. That's a guy named Stuart Sullivan, oh. who's been around since like, you know, the eighties in Austin worked with like everybody from Willie Nelson to the butthole surfers to, uh, oh, yeah. I think, <laughs> I think he had something to do with the sublime album. That was the big sublime oh. album too. Okay, so yeah. And uh, yeah, that was his studio. And he was like, you know, huge API console, all the mics, all the, everything you can imagine. And then Sick. the second album that we did with Grupo that I produced, I we tried to uh, do a DIY version of that. We rented a house oh, yeah. and uh, set up a studio in there. And I remember 
using the same kind of approach to it, but I'm like, why does it not sound like the same shit we did at Stewart's? So I'm like, oh, because we don't we, we're renting like, you know, we had like really crappy just using 57, and it had a charm to yeah. it. You know, that was like my uh, crash course into learning that uh, how to do stuff, but we didn't have the gear, you know. Right. But it was, but I, that was a fun approach too, and we learned. And then at some point, you try to, uh, I think, marry all of it and realize that like the gear is important but not the only thing that's important you know it's about how creative you get with it and uh but then again having access to the nice gear does not suck by any means you know? no no but i i see what i hear what you mean sometimes i get compliments on recordings i did a long time ago that i think are like you know i've gotten so much better at it you know <laughs> and people are like i like that one you did back in then it was like a 57 on the kick drum or something ridiculous yeah. you know like mm -hmm. i had two mics but uh for yeah. sure the creativity and the songs are the most important part. That's for sure. Absolutely, man. The songs, the you know, the the player are the most important thing, and uh, for sure. And then I think a close second is like, yeah, if you can if you can get a decent signal, yeah, you know, uh, and make it sound cool, then even better. Well, so you were mentioning when you were doing this Grupo Fantasma record that um, you were playing him some Cuban records and you were also just mentioned NWA and Dr. Dre and like what were the producers you were kind of looking to for inspiration uh, that was kind of the vision you had in your head? Like what was the overall, I want it to be sort of like this. You're talking about uh, for the Grupo records in particular? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, you know, I always remember bringing up hip hop a lot and yeah. we, you know, a lot of us came from a similar background and, and uh, had a musical, shared a musical aesthetic, but it was like, how do you bring that to, um, you know, a Latin record? And, and you already mm -hmm. had, um, you know, as you know, those guys like also who you were talking about yesterday, like Ozo Motley, yeah. who were yeah. already kind of, um, you know, having a more overt, overt uh, hip hop influence in terms of like having a DJ on there and having program beats but we right. always wanted to try to do it in this more organic, like less, uh, a little more of a subtle fashion, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, hip, hip hop has uh, by far and large been the biggest musical influence aesthetically yeah. to everything I do for the rest of my life. There's just no way that to shake that, you know? Um, yeah. If I'm hearing drums, I'm hearing the way that Pete Rock drums sounded, the way <laughs> Tribe Called Quest drums sounded, not the way that like Metallica drums sounded, you know. As right, and I right. and I listen to Metallica, but like, Same, yeah. But I just, I that's not. I'm not hearing those those drum sounds. I'm hearing highly likely. I'm hearing the drums from a Tribe record or like a, sure. in my head. That's what I want it to sound like. Well, it's so funny. Like all the guys in our extended scene, mm -hmm. all of us grew up listening to hip hop, and uh, you know, I think it has something to do with all those samples that were used on those records, it was that one little perfect catchy hooky thing, whether it was a bass line or horn line, or it was the, the break beat, whatever it was. But we all have that mentality of like, whatever I'm going to use here, it's going to be an eight bar slab of something catchy. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's not going to be like a big jam section in the middle. Mm -hmm. The drums are going to be really, you know, heavy and funky mm -hmm. and like, it's just a thing like our whole generation was inspired by that for sure. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine who, um, you know, a few years back and about, you know, making people that make, were making music that references, you know, kind of another era a lot, but he was like, you can't ever pretend that hip hop didn't happen. Like you can't yeah. ignore that that happened because that made, uh, 
that made things that took old music and and they would add maybe an 808 underneath or they would do this and that they would just make it more modern and bigger and uh and that's like just amazing i still i still i still can't i still like just watching that cypress hill documentary the other day i was like watching them talk about making those records and everything and i'm just still like such an incredible art form you know from yeah, the production boy. to the songwriting to Absolutely, man. Well, I wanted to talk to you about collaborating because you, just like myself, we are all constantly collaborating with a ton of people. When I first kind of started getting to know you, you know, you had Grupo Fantasma, like you said, you were doing the thing with Martin, the Ocote Soul Sounds, and then later Brownout. What is... I wanted to just talk to you about collaborating and a lot of musicians, you know, some of us are a little bit more introverted. Some of us are a little more extroverted. How does, how do you feel about that? And how do you look to collaborating? Is it easy for you? Is it kind of, you have to, it's a way to break you out of your shell. Are you naturally extroverted? How do you feel about all that? No, you know, I would, I would tend to say that I'm naturally introverted. I was an, I was yeah. an only child and I was, I spent a lot of time. My parents were always working. I was on myself a lot. And so yeah. I, I, when I'm like kind of writing and just sketching and, you know, making beats, demos, songs, whatever, I, I tend to, I like to be by myself. I like, but then at some point I have to get out of the room and, and, uh, and get with somebody else and then really see people's reactions. And, and, uh, right. and I love collaboration because I just think there was that, there was like people, I, I guess people are doing it again now, but like there was a time, you know, in whether it was in jazz or in soul, there was a time where, you know, Donnie Hathaway and Roberta Flack would make an album together. There was right. a time when Willie Nelson and, and uh, Merle Haggard would make an album together. And then, in, yeah. you know, the jazz guys would always, you know, I love being able to go back and be like, oh, Coltrane made a record with, you know, whoever. And yeah. like, yeah. I love collaboration like that. I love, I think it's, uh, for artists careers to go back and find those ones where they worked with somebody else and met yeah. halfway. I'm just a huge, huge fan of that. And I think it always, um, I learned something from everybody I work with, you know, I learned, I still learn a lot from Martine and, and, uh, so on and so forth. I just feel like it's really important, particularly for somebody like me who works alone a lot. Yeah. You know, if I worked alone forever, only by myself, like none of this stuff would come out because <laughs> you know, I, right, right. I would just be overanalyzing the hell out of everything. Yeah. Well, Martine, I mean, I know Martine a little bit and mm -hmm. he's such a sweet, soft spoken and like humbled guy. You know, he's a good, I would imagine a great person to collaborate with. Yeah, absolutely, man. That was a, that was a huge one. That was just kind of serendipity the way that worked out. Uh, my, I was a big fan of, of Antibalas and when they made yeah. that first, the very first, uh, record my uh wife who was my girlfriend at the time she had moved to new york back then for a job and and i was always playing that first stuff and that was you know yeah, that was so really good. early on and and uh she moved over there and her room she gets there and she calls me and she's like so my roommate is like best friends with the antibalas guys and i already met, she met them on like day one and she was <laughs> like yeah i gotta connect you with she's really good friends of martin so we just connected and just came together like that. And then there's like, we're both Tauruses. Uh, so my, uh, yeah, there was this, even this crazy thing where my grandmother used to have her hair. Um, she had, she would dye her hair black and leave a, a white streak. Oh, and yeah. his and when, one time he saw 
a picture of my grandmother and he was like that's wild because his grandmother did the exact opposite she had a white white hair and left a black streak and oh, it was like great. the same hairstyle yeah yeah <laughs> they crazy. were they were they should have been uh, totally, uh soulmates man oh that's yeah, crazy yeah. oh my god wow that's amazing Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, collaboration is. Uh, I, I feel you on everything you're saying, and uh, but yeah, you got eventually, you know, as introverted as some of us are, and I can relate to to, to what you're saying too, um, of being introverted. But uh, mm-hmm. eventually, we got to play it for people and see how they react. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's important as well. Well, in addition to collaborating, I love you're kind of collaborating different sounds, and it's something you're sort of known for. It's something that I love as well, where. Of course, we love those old records, stacks, and you know all these records that um, just are perfect and classic in our minds. But um, I love how you're constantly melding different styles together. You know, especially with like I want you. You ended up doing Brownout, and you you know you guys tackled the Public Enemy record, Fear of a Black Planet, and then you guys did all the Black Sabbath covers, um, and just kind of twisting them and creating your own versions of these. And I think that's just so beautiful. Can you talk about how you approached each of these ideas, the the PE record and the Black Sabbath records? There's two of them I know. And uh, yeah. how realizing them was different, like we're yeah, such very, different kind of things. Yeah, man the uh, the Black Sabbath thing was kind of uh, honestly started as a little bit of an inside joke with the band. Where I mean, we were Black Sabbath fans for sure, but we were joking yeah. one time in a on tour, and I don't remember how it even came up, but somebody just said Brown Sabbath, and everybody just started laughing. <laughs> yeah. And then we had to do this residency here in Austin at this club for a couple of months or maybe a month. And we wanted to do a different theme every night and yeah. we would listen to black Sabbath on tour. And there's a, like a, you know, definitely a funk to black Sabbath. I mean, it's totally. that just funky as hell. And for sure. Um, Bill Ward. I remember like listening and we wanted to do this, uh, this, so for this residency, we were like, we should do a different theme every night, every week. And, uh, somebody was like, how about just Brown? We just do black Sabbath as Brown Sabbath. And we did it. And, sure was crazy and then like a year later ozzy osbourne found out about it like somehow yeah Yeah, i mean it was wild and then we ended up playing like a private show for ozzy and like met ozzy and stuff and (laughs) and that was that quote i just saw it on your on your guys website amazing man and uh yeah so we did that and and it wasn't that much of a stretch like honestly like i said you know there it was the the stuff was already kind of just funky as hell and we loved you know fuzzy guitars and all that so that was a fun a fun thing i think it got to a point where we were uh, on one hand it was like our guarantees on tour were up we were getting you know big festival offers bonnaroo and whatnot but then it became it got to a point where we could never play brownout again because everybody just wanted brown you know we'd play a brownout show and people would be yelling for brown sabbath so we had to kind of we had to dial that back and be like man we're gonna get stuck being a black sabbath cover band forever you know as fun as it was it's like it's kind of (laughs) not yeah and then the the public enemy thing was just a dream come true man i mean that that when fat beats reached out about that you know there had already been a series of those where you know like uh leon michaels did the the wu-tang stuff and just killed that that's a classic album and they just approached us about it and i love that i love the public enemy idea because it uh a lot of it was a lot of that production was based on just james brown breaks you know if you are cool in the gang or whatever like if you really stripped it down to the core there was underneath 
all the noise and the chaos and the you yeah. know which is beautiful uh there was a a james brown break a cool in the gang break or whatever it was and that's something that we we played those songs you know at the yeah. core so we dissected it and kind of built it back up as in like what if we just kind of imagine like what if the bomb squad had the jbs in the studio you know yeah. and back in the day so like right. rather than adding a lot of uh you know recreating samples and and doing that approach uh and layering and layering we just thought how can we make as much noise just with the live band and imagine that the bomb squad had you know been there in 1972 in the studio with them like what would they have <laughs> right. you know what kind of noises would they have gotten out of the horns and stuff so right that was a, a super fun challenge it was really really fun and the stuff was right. you know it's so uh I mean, I don't even know if atonal is a word, but like it's it's it sounds amazing. But when you really listen to like sample against sample on each song, like they're just it's so chaotic and there's so yes. much noise and energy that it was actually a bit of a challenge to make it, you know, because it sounds awesome when you're layering samples like that. But if you play that yeah. with a with a live band, it sounds like you're playing yeah. wrong note, wrong notes, you know. So it's like yeah. we had to figure that out. Well, and a lot of it is like theoretically not correct. Like you saw us when we'd come out to Austin and backing mm -hmm. up whoever. Like mm -hmm. we'd play a lot of these samples and we'd get in to start kind of shedding them or whatever and be like, that's a minor chord and that's whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't always theoretically what mm -hmm. it's supposed to be, but it sounded fucking amazing, you know. Did you guys approach it by would you guys correct those things and make them no, musical or would no. you leave them as this? Yeah. Oh yeah. no, okay. we left yeah. them and and thank god like you know from i remember jamar and the guys from brand nubian were like dang you guys did it just like the record and we were like thank you you know mm -hmm. that's that was like high praise you know obviously yeah we all, like, like we were just saying we all grew up on those records so we wanted to sound them have them sound just like the just mm -hmm. like they layered them but uh yeah it's not all it wasn't always uh musically correct yeah correct. well it sounded awesome i saw you guys a couple of times <laughs> with those scion tours i saw you all a couple yeah. of times uh one South by Southwest, one like show at the parish I remember going to. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it all sounded amazing, man. Oh, thanks, man. Well, anyway, back to you. So what, uh, after the PE record came out, how did, I know you guys, uh, Ozzy reacted to the Black, to the Brown Sabbath, but how did Bomb Squad or any of those guys hear Fear of a Brown Planet? No, man, there was a time where we were in, uh, in California on tour, and I don't remember what city it is that Chuck D apparently lives there. Oh yeah, uh, somewhere in California, and there was word know. that like they were trying to get Chuck D out to a show, but now nobody ever, no. nobody ever uh, reached out about that or anything. Who knows if it was on their radar? I think it was on Chuck D's radar through. I think I believe his wife was a professor, oh, yeah. and uh, and um, I, I just remember that coming up like Chuck D might come out and never Dang. did. I know. Well, well, as a huge PE fan and a fan of you guys, I thought it was freaking amazing. Oh <laughs> so, man, we were hoping we were hoping sure to. Uh, thought so too. I hope so, man. We were hoping to to have collaborated with them. Uh, we did end yeah. up playing with Jizza for a while. Oh yeah, kind of I saw a, that. A little bit before that, and that was uh, yeah. you know a good connection into live hip hop. But now nah, PE never came together. Uh, well, I was. This brings me to a point. I was. Uh, remembering in my last series of podcasts i interviewed peanut butter wolf and he was mm -hmm. talking about how it's of course important when you're an artist trying to get labels to be interested in you so that they'll put out your stuff but he's he's like it's even more important when you get other artists that you admire to co-sign on your art like 
getting you know Ozzy Osbourne to give you this quote and react the way he did had to have an effect just on propelling the band forward, giving you guys confidence and that you were doing something cool and unique. And um, I know uh, with your other group, Grupo Fantasma, that we were talking about, you guys had a lot of um, time with Prince. He loved you guys, had you back him a bit. And um, I'm wondering how that cosign played out. Did it help propel the band? Oh, for sure, man. Absolutely. On a number of levels, on a, you know, and having that cosign in, in the music industry is like opens a ton of doors if it's like yeah. these guys played with Prince. I mean, to this day, people, uh, you know, want to hear about that and hear stories. I think the most important thing <clears throat> though, for us at the time was we were really raw when we met him and it was really mm -hmm. early on in our career. And, you know, I was in my late twenties and, um, and I, and it, but he gave us so much confidence because he believed in us. You know, we were like rawest man. When we showed up to those rehearsals, the first rehearsals with him, I hardly yeah. had a pedal board. My, I had like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm like rigging it like I used to. And his guys are like in just impeccable like white suits, and they look amazing, and they have the, they're so pro, and they were just like all monsters, all sweethearts. We became friends with them, but like. Yeah, I, I remember walking in and feeling like a, like they grabbed a high school basketball team and threw them in the NBA finals. You know, like <laughs> we were super scrappy, man. And uh, uh, and he believed he saw like he he believed in us, and that gave us you know that gave me a lot of confidence as a guitar player. Yeah. That gave everybody a ton of confidence as a band, and that was that was a a big turning point for you know all of our you know musical kind of developments and careers. I was still I just still just came and believe sometimes that I was in the room with them a lot. Well, scrappy, but you guys had lots of flavor, and I'm sure he saw that and was like, mm -hmm. we just need to polish this up. And, you know, anybody who's worth their weight in salt, you know, was scrappy, but had some great ideas and had flavor mm -hmm. back in the day. So I'm sure he saw that in you guys, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, dang. What uh, Do you have any amazing memories you want to share about Prince? Yeah, you know, and, and speaking of, like, of scrappy, I remember, well, so we used to play his club in vegas he had a residency at a at a club at a hotel called the rio and he yeah. would play so he curated the the club and he would it was like wednesday night was old school night and he would have everything from like you know um uh you know like 70s funk guys to to like that were his influences to like dougie fresh would do a night or whatever oh cool and then Thursday night was Latin night and then Friday and Saturdays he would play. So we became the house band for Latin night and we would, yeah. we would play and he would come see us, but never really, he was always kind of mysterious. You know, he'd like, we'd see him and then we'd go away for him afterwards and he was gone. But then out of nowhere, one day we got a call and I'd just gotten home from Vegas and they were, our manager was like, how fast can you get to the airport? I was like, man, I just got here. Like I just got home and he's like, well, we need you to get back to the airport because Prince wants you guys in LA. Oh, like for what he's like we don't know like nobody ever really knew what was going on you know it was always like this yeah. uh surprise and we went back to la we they got us we ended up at the um uh the hotel beverly wilshire i think it is oh like yeah. The, yeah the one from pretty woman the hotel from pretty woman right 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 there was this huge whole like floor suite and we got there and there's a party and it was for the golden globes and uh okay we got there and at that point we knew his some of his crew a little bit like the sound guy the guitar tech and stuff and we yeah. got there and we were like okay so they already had our back line and we were literally in the corner of a hotel room um and <laughs> i was like are we opening for him or like what's happening and they're like 
the band's not here it's just him we we're like well what are we doing because we don't know his songs like we don't we didn't you know get any heads up yeah and he was like i think he just wants to play with y'all and i remember like being like well play what like what's we literally don't know we might have known one of his songs back then yeah and then he was they were like he just wants you guys to, to just rock a party and okay. we were like well that's actually kind of what we do like we used to as a latin <laughs> band like go in and out of james, james brown songs back into like you know, uh, quote, Earth, Wind and Fire into like a Santana song. Like we actually, if there was anything we knew how to do was play a party, you yeah, know, right. like get right. people dancing and sure. we would mix in like, you know, Afro Latin funk and then go into like some heavy James Browns for 10 minutes and then, yeah. and then back to Latin. And that I was like, well, that's, that's what he wants to do. That's what we do like really well. Yeah. And that was, um, and he show, finally showed up, uh, was standing like literally right next to me in this tiny, tiny like hotel room or or the room we were playing in was a hotel room it was this huge suite but uh Dang. literally you no, just set your gear up in this middle of this hotel yeah room? man no no oh, stage crazy. no stage literally <laughs> and he was standing right next to me wow. and uh and all and he had so much fun they were like man he hasn't had that much fun in a while because oh, it was, so, it was so loose you know it was like going in and out of all that stuff we were just yeah. were like we have no other choice we don't know what else to play so we're just gonna do that and he just sat <laughs> oh, in on guitar cool. and it was just like crazy magical man it was amazing see the fancy white suits are are great and the showbiz part is great but getting down in a hotel room just having uh -huh. fun is the best part totally and man you felt that oh that's mm -hmm. beautiful adrian thanks mm -hmm. for sharing that man dang well um i've was reading that your first Grammy award was for the Grupo Fantasma record El Extensial mm -hmm. and uh, in 2011. And I know obviously everyone I know who's won a Grammy, I'm always interested just because it's, it's obviously a nice validation for your art and all that stuff. But does it actually, do you feel like it plays a part in forward propulsion for the group or how does it play? How did it play out for you? Did winning a Grammy do stuff for the group or was it just like, oh, that was a nice accolade? You know, it definitely does, man. Uh, the funniest yeah. quote I've heard about it all is uh, Grammys don't mean anything unless you have one, uh, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> which right. just kind of sums it all up. But yeah, yeah, it's it's as much as people try to act like, you know, and I definitely don't make music to try to win a Grammy or like sure. no thinking about that at all. But uh, man, it, it absolutely does. Whoever says, I mean, unless, you know, Drake and, the weekend might not need a Grammy, you know, but like for a band that was at the position that we were yeah, and everything that I've been yeah. involved in, like absolutely is 100% helpful in, in opening doors and getting somebody to respond to an email or whatever it is. Is like, if you're Grammy nominated, Grammy winning, even better, people yeah. pay more attention, you know, and like, you know, again, like you hear the, the artists that, that boycott and do all that. They probably, they don't need it. You know, Drake doesn't need another Grammy yeah. to, to sell, tours or records but it absolutely helps a young band um it still helps to this day with anything and uh yeah. uh yeah i wouldn't wouldn't trade that in for anything you know i didn't even go that year that we won i did the one year that i've been there like four or five times now and the one year that we won i didn't go <laughs> really that's <funny. laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well i get the feeling and you know it's obviously one of the reasons i'm attracted to you as a person is just your hustle man you're always working mm -hmm. and like you're going to keep plugging away and getting shit done regardless of awards and all that stuff which is which is how you have to be just keep moving absolutely man i would i would be doing this no matter what you know 
Yeah. Well, I know everybody want, will want to hear about Black Pumas. And I read uh, an interesting thing. I didn't know Eric grew up in the Valley and used to busk on the Santa Monica Pier, I read. Yeah, that's where that's where he's from originally. He moved around a little bit in high school. Yeah, he. So I think he was born there, and then he went to uh, New Mexico. Went to Virginia for a little bit, uh, and then I think he graduated high school from New Mexico and went to college there. But then he went back to LA, yeah. and um, I mean, I you know I've been to New Mexico with him. I've been to everywhere, but I can just tell he yeah. has that LA is in him. You know that that uh, <laughs> California is 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 where I see him feel most at home, you know? And I think uh, yeah. that's a big part of who he is and, and who he was, but yeah, he was busking there and I didn't meet him until he came to Austin. He bust his way with a bunch of friends. They just went on like a busking tour and ended up in Austin. And I met him soon after that. Yeah. He was busking in Austin too. I didn't know. I just, I didn't yeah. meet him until much later. What do you feel? There's, there's like a thing that, I mean, obviously people talk, trash about Los Angeles, you know, that it's just kind of superficial and all this. But for me, I'm like, we have such a rich history of people combining genres, whether it's like X combining, you know, like a pop aesthetic to punk rock, you know, really good songwriting to punk rock, or whether it's Fishbone combining ska and hard rock. And like, you know, there's so many examples, The Doors, obviously, back in the day and love. And um, I'm wondering if how Eric's being from LA, has it played into Black Pumas and how you guys mash up styles and kind of make it something new and unique? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and he'll, uh, you know, he says this a lot. So I'm sort of, I was going to say, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm going to, uh, you know, <laughs> I know that him being growing up around, uh, you know, in LA, a lot of, uh, around a lot of Mexican culture yeah, has, has had an influence on him too, in terms of like, he speaks pretty damn, some like, sometimes he, his Spanish on tour when we're in you know like in spain or mech we were just in mexico and south america like yeah it's pretty amazing and i think he feels really connected to mexican culture in a way yeah. that uh that has informed uh, you know i wouldn't say that our music has like really a necessarily a mexican influence but in the way that we both combine you know i was a mexican kid who who was really into uh you know for lack of a better description a lot of black music i was into a lot of hip-hop and a lot of yeah. you know old funk and soul and yeah and uh you know, our, the, uh, culturally, I think we both have that that connection of of respect between, you know, what we each were around and into. Yeah, Eric speaks fluent Spanish. Uh, pr like not fluent, but pretty yeah. well, pretty damn well enough to, you know, you grew up in LA. To, you speak some Spanish, man. Exactly, man. Enough to make <laughs> enough to make girls smile in Mexico ah, and in Spain. Yeah, you know, that's nice, right? And right. you know, yeah. Dang. Well, talk about the first time uh, you guys, you heard Eric sing. Oh, man, the first time I, I watched, so a, friend, a mutual friend of mine connected us. Uh, I had I had been working on some instrumentals, and I, I had lunch. Well, a mutual friend of mine of ours uh, had taken me out to lunch one day to pick my brain about something. And as I was, we were leaving, I'm like, hey, man, you know what? Do you know anybody who would be into, like, singing kind of some soul stuff? I think for a long time I had this aversion to doing you know, something that was like overtly soul influenced yeah. because so many other people I knew were doing it. And I don't know why I just couldn't bring myself to do it, even though I'd always wanted to. And then I was just like, you know what? I'm, I just, I had this epiphany uh, in 2016 or 17 where I was like, I, I'm just going to do it. I want to do it. I need to yeah. like, I remember this friend who was the first uh, friend of mine way back in the day who, who turned 40 years old. And I remember asking him for advice and he was like, 
And we were like, do you have any life advice for us, you know, youngins? And he's like, if there's anything you want to do, do it now because time flies. And I remember thinking like, oh, okay, yeah. I need to do it now. So I asked this guy, Brian Ray, like, do you know anybody who would be into this? He's like, oh, yeah, you have to call Eric Burton. Oh. Um, he's like, he's the best singer I've ever heard. So I'm like, all right. So I go home and like Google Eric Burton. And, uh, you know, all the videos up until that point that I had seen, there's a bunch of YouTube stuff of him. Like he had never really been in a band. It was always him on a on a guitar um and he was playing neil young songs and like and but he was really like the most insane soulful like voice and and it was actually perfect because i'm like i don't want to do a soul revival band like where you know there was just so many other people that were doing that and all peers and friends of mine that i totally respect and all that but like i just didn't want i couldn't was like i don't want to be a one of those like bands that that does that there's just too many people doing that really well and uh but then I saw, I was like, oh, this guy plays acoustic guitar and he's like more of like playing like a folk singer. Like, that's perfect. And yeah, uh, we connected and I sent him a couple of tracks. I didn't hear from him for a while. It was a couple of weeks. And then one day I remember driving to a gig. I was playing, subbing for a friend on guitar and like out of nowhere, he called me and he was like playing one of the tracks in the background. It was all distorted on the phone. I couldn't even hear anything, but his energy is like so off the hook. And he was like, Hey man, like, oh, check this out. This track is dope. Like, and he started singing uh, on the great. phone, and I could yeah. hardly hear it. But I was like, oh, this is crazy. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right. After he stopped, I was like, hey, hey, that's dope. Can we get to, can we get together in the studio though? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Just let me know when. And, uh, he came in the studio, and the first day we got together, we recorded two songs. We did uh, wow. Black Moon, Black Moon Rising, and Fire in that first afternoon. Dang. So you had these as instrumentals. So he had gone and written all the lyrics and the vocal melodies right off the bat mm-hmm. and came in with all that ready to go. Yeah, actually, Dang. he had a he had a bit of a he's almost approaches it like, a, you know, they say Jay-Z doesn't write lyrics or anything like he, yeah. he was approaching some of those kind of almost like an MC, like he would freestyle for a, like he had concepts, uh, loose concepts and he was like the early on you know what i used to call the eric burton method for those first few sessions were like i would hit record and just and he would just freestyle and freestyle and freestyle and freestyle and freestyle like so much so that i'd be like surfing craigslist like while he was (laughs) cracking letting him yeah get it get it all out until like we'd stop and be like that's dope let's chase it then he'd write it down and like that was kind of the method for a few of those early songs and then some of the stuff that we that we uh, when we actually became Black Pumas and added stuff to complete the album, those were like colors and some of those songs. Those are songs he had written a long time ago. Those Dang. were fully fully written, and the the style of the song fit perfectly with the production that I was already doing for it. So it was like right. just again right. just serendipity. Serendipity, man. I love hearing that he's yet another person who will just sit and listen to the track and vocalize over it until he finds the thing that he likes. And then Mm -hmm. you start plugging in the storyline. But I've heard that about so many people from Prince to Michael Jackson to, you know, there's just endless. Mm -hmm. It's such a good way to write. And that's like something that our listeners really, I hope, take home. Like, if you're having trouble songwriting, just listen to the track and sing what comes to your brain first. Mm-hmm. Who cares what it is? You know, you might not find it on the first take. You might not find it until the 13th take. Mm-hmm. But you're going to find something and it's going to start taking form. Absolutely, man. It, it's like that first that first instinct that you have of what you lay down mm-hmm. sometimes is going to be the best thing you're yeah. going to do, you know? Sometimes it is. It's that first mm-hmm. time you do it. And you're like, I didn't even think about trying that, but that's fucking perfect. You yeah. Know? Yeah. 
for sure. Dang. Well, how has has your write has the way you guys collaborate and write changed? Uh, you know, through the years, and obviously with the success you guys have had, has it changed at all or no? Yeah, yeah, it has. It's a little more. Uh, you know, back then we didn't know what we were doing. This like we didn't know we were going to start a band. We didn't know. Right. <laughs> you know, we just. I mean, you know what it's like. You probably do the same, but like we we thought we were just going to record some songs and try to like get syncs out of them. I don't know. We didn't really have a sure. plan. We were just doing it. Uh, yeah. But now it's like it's kind of a little bit more. Uh, oh, it's actually just probably I would say it's more all over the place now. We still do that method. We still have. I still crank out tons of instrumentals, send them to him, and he'll freestyle until I'll stop him and be like, "That's a super dope concept. You I, you should run with that." You know, like yeah, whatever the yeah. whatever that one phrase was, and then. Uh, right. But he also you know, still writes on an acoustic guitar, a lot of stuff and, and brings that to me. But now he's actually been branching out and playing, um, writing on keys. We were talking about that earlier, like how it yeah. just uh, breaks you out of that box. And he's been writing on like little keys, like little weird Casios and piano and all over the oh, place. Yeah. So we're, it's, you know, the, the first record, we didn't know what, what we were going to do with it. So there was kind of no pressure. We just kind of did it. And here we are still, but we, with this new stuff we're we're definitely like taking our time to make sure that we um are challenging ourselves and also just not repeating the first one you know it's yeah. really important to me like to not fall into that uh uh box and like change i'm trying to make sure that the palette production wise sonically is a little different you know yeah. uh, than just redoing this the first record again well, yeah, why would you do that? But you have that through line of his amazing voice and mm -hmm. your taste in guitar playing and production. So it's going to be amazing, I'm sure. Dang, well, uh, a funny question. Do you, and, do you and Eric do anything special on May 7th when you're in Austin? Uh, <laughs> uh this year is uh is probably just being i think we're just flying home that day no it doesn't okay. it hasn't, wor <laughs> hasn't worked out like that with the pandemic fyi for our listeners i found i just found out by doing my investigating that may 7th is black puma's day it is Austin. it is yeah that's amazing man it's uh -huh. so freaking cool <laughs> well uh i also wanted to talk to you about um your studio electric deluxe mm -hmm. uh what are the challenges and what are the biggest benefits of having your own studio there man how's it been going man the biggest challenge the last year is that i've been on tour forever and i never right. get to use it like we were just <laughs> joking about like i'm uh in a studio here with like all kinds of gear and everything but yeah. i'm running into I'm using the mic off the computer because I couldn't figure out my new, <laughs> my new uh, Wave sound grid system. And I'm right. plugged in directly. I'm bypassing the Neve and going directly into the back of the iMac here. Uh, <laughs> These are no, good problems. Been, yeah, exactly. No, it's <laughs> it's. Uh, I wouldn't really say there are too many challenges other than that I just haven't been here. Uh, yeah. And I'm at a point now where I have an engineer who's uh, technically, you know, I'm, I've never been, I've always been an engineer by, by just by default, just because I've, yeah you know but i have an engineer here um aaron glimbowski and he's the one who kind of set it up you know he came in and started helping me as an engineer and my stuff was like super janky and rigged up and and i remember telling him like can you wire this place when we took it all down and moved into this new studio i was like let you set it up in a way that somebody else can walk in here and use it then i'll right. learn that system because mine oh. used to be like reach under here and grab that hit hit this on the right yeah yeah exactly but i <laughs> so he helped me step it up but then the the drawback to that is now that like sometimes i don't know how to use this stuff i'm like how do i plug in here but uh oh, no man. it's been it's great having a creative space that i can just come into and um yeah 
you know, every single day. And I, my studio used to be at my house, which I believe yours is, right? Yeah, yeah, same, yep. And during the pandemic, uh, we, you know, with my kids home and, and my wife was working from home as well. It was just a little too. And then also my studio was really small and yeah. having people in there during the pandemic was stressful. So I found this space sure. and moved out and got into this like proper facility. Now I have a actual you know, live room and a B room and all this stuff. And it's, it's pretty awesome, man. The only challenge is now that I have to pay rent, you know, but oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> being at your house is like uh, that. I didn't have any overhead, but now I have yeah. that, but it's amazing, man. It's a create, I I've learned, I've been in enough studios to know what I like. And I, yes. my favorite studios are the ones where if you got an idea, you're laying it down in two minutes later, it's not like, well, hold on, let me go get the U87 and give me like right. 20, 30 minutes to like, check the you know and i'm like man if i want to if i have an idea i want to be able to just like hit record and start playing so like we've set it up to where you know for the most part everything is ready to go and like i'm not going to bog anybody down with like a technical thing because like we were saying the most important thing is your your idea your your songs and getting it down Mm -hmm. when when the iron is hot and you're feeling inspired Mm-hmm. Well, geez, big up Aaron for setting it all up. Beautifully. Yeah, man, like that's great. Is it is it um, strictly a studio? I know you you have the full the live room and everything, but is it are there accommodations for people to stay from out of town, or is it strictly just a studio? Just a studio. Uh, gotcha, gotcha. I I do have a place now, a little bit out of town, that I'm gonna start setting up for that kind of oh, situation. Cool. You know, yeah, yeah, that I'm gonna try to get people, friends, to come and stay in. Yeah. Oh, that's bitching, man. Well, I hope I can come out to Austin sometime soon Please again. Please do, and man. Check you out, man. Um, well, I, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to talk about two last things. Um, I've just been listening to that um, Latin Shade of Texas mm-hmm. soul record you did, man. I was telling you yesterday. It's yeah, yeah. beautiful, dude. Just the production is great. All the singers are great. And uh, I just love reading the one sheet on it. And I was hoping you'd talk to our listeners about Johnny Hernandez and the mm-hmm. West Side Sound of San Antonio mm-hmm. and the unique brand of soul music that comes from Chicanos identifying mm-hmm. with black music and just the story of that. It's such an inspired record. And I was really feeling it, man. Hey, thank you, man. Yeah, it was an idea I had. Like, honestly, I've had that idea for like 20 years or something. Uh, yeah, we you know, like I was telling you about Grupo Fantasma was, you know, a few of us were from my hometown, from Laredo. And we were like these kids that grew up on the Mexican border. And we were inspired by, you know, by hip hop music. And that was mm-hmm. kind of what opened the doors for us to to jazz and to funk and to soul. And then I didn't really know. I mean, uh, the, you know, Little Joe and, and uh, well, actually not Little Joe and La Familia, but uh, Ruben Ramos, Little Joe, Sonny and the Sunliners, that was all music that was huge where I was. But yeah. when, honestly, when I was a little kid, I I just thought that was like old people music. I was like, I don't, I don't <laughs> listen to that stuff. But, you know, then you, then I, we ended up doing something with Ruben Ramos and he was talking about how the, him and Sonny and, and Little Joe, like early on, uh, this was before there were compilations and things, you know, this was, uh, sure. he was like, we were really heavily influenced by old rock and roll and Motown and soul and whatever. And, um, yeah. And I remember having that connection with him and he was like, we didn't actually start singing in Spanish until much, much later, like the seventies, you know, sometimes okay. and early on they were trying to sing soul and, and all this stuff. And I remember just think, drawing the parallels and thinking like, man, that's crazy because that's actually for us kind of a similar thing, except for us, it was hip hop, you know? Yeah, and that's Los Lobos too, same thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I was like, man, it would be really cool to connect the dots. I mean, this was 20 years ago, I had the idea and I was like, this would be really cool to connect all these dots. I started collecting 
a lot of the old their old records you know anytime i could find any early ruben ramos little joe sunny yeah. whatever and then um you know eventually i remember the first compilation that i got was way back in the day was that texas funk i don't know if you ever heard that one. yeah yeah i have that <laughs> so and, on cd i think and that one had like you know the the more the funk side of when they were all covering right. sissy strut and whatever right and then uh you know, fast forward to like a few years ago, you know, Big Crown has, has reissued all the Sunny and the Sunliner stuff. And yeah. there's just been, you know, for years, this resurgence of, of uh, I mean, this has been for a long time now, but like this resurgence of people really appreciating that, that uh, unique musical sound. And the way, being from Texas, I think what made San Antonio, you know, which was kind of the hotbed of it here, like was interesting what made it interesting was that like you could hear the influence of Mexico. Like you can hear that the, yeah. the, you know, they were doing like these kind of doo-wop style vocals and then the horns, but the horns, the trumpets sounded kind of like Mexican music, like mariachi music. Sure. Sure. More so than a horn section from stacks or whatever. And uh, <laughs> right, right, right. it was a really super unique sound. And, and I had been pitching it to people for 10 years to um, yeah do it but nobody would ever you know and i i didn't want to try to do that i knew it was going to take some serious effort and also honestly like a little bit of a budget with some of the old school sure. guys is like yeah you know they were from the business era where like they may have been ripped off and they want cat you know they need to know you're serious cash up front please exactly so <laughs> um yeah they uh amazon and national news uh records bid on it and were like super supportive about the story and everything and and that actually so funny enough, when I was started sitting down to work on that, which was in 2017, uh, I was supposed to start that. I was supposed to actually start that record. And I was going to just be, I was writing and writing demos and bringing in guys to play it all live uh, to start writing songs in that style. And what, what, what happened, I remember, was that I started writing stuff that was taking a left turn. And I was like, man, this doesn't sound like that record. It ended up being Black Pumas. Oh, so yeah. all of a sudden the stuff was getting heavier and heavier. I was like, that's not the like, look at my soul record. This is <laughs> right. And I went on that tangent and then I came back to look at my soul and did that. And it was just amazing, man. Uh, and you know, at that time I was, I'm still learning about every time I spoke to somebody, it would open a new door. Like little Joe, I didn't realize that Johnny, his brother, Johnny Hernandez was the one who was actually singing on a lot of the early soul stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like every time I spoke to somebody, I would learn about this and learn about that. So it felt like I was making like a documentary. But at, yeah. and then I, I, what I loved about it was just how inclusive that, you know, if you think of if you said Chicano soul and lowriders and whatever yeah. soldies to somebody, it sounds almost intimidating in a way that like if you're not a in a lowrider, they'll kick you out or whatever. But like it's the most inclusive, like loving scene, right. you know. And that was why I really liked when I met, you know, Aaron Fraser and kind of that Durand click was that like Aaron was this white kid from Indiana and yeah. he wrote, was writing like the bangers, the hits that they love in that community. And they just totally mm. embraced him. And, and he wasn't doing it uh, as a gimmick or anything. He was just naturally feeling that music and they embraced yeah. it. And, and that was so fascinating to me to, when I was working on it, it was like, it's just such an inclusive uh community and you know i did that record and it, it 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 was exclusively on amazon for a long time and then it just yeah. was able to come out on spotify and the other streaming okay. services and on vinyl like in the last few months or something yeah i mean i think in general if you're showing love you're gonna get love back you know and mm -hmm. whether it's with whatever 
any any music I've been lucky to do, whether it's Jamaican music, whether it's this mm -hmm. you know this record, it's like if you show appreciation and come at it from a humble place, just because you love what you're doing, people are going to respond to it. You know, absolutely, man, I love that. Uh, yeah, me too. Well, for our last thing, you've got this new record coming out that I'm excited about too, the Bolero mm -hmm. Psychedelicos, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. man, what a lineup of singers! It's incredible, dude. Oh, Gabby thank Moreno, you, thank you, I know her a little bit. I uh -huh. did something with her a while back. And then Money mm -hmm. Mark played on some, Mark Ribot, and uh, Yeah. Man, it's incredible. What uh, Talk about the new record and uh, your feelings on it. Give us the rundown. Yeah, that was another another idea that I've had. You know, I get I probably have ideas for records like 10, 10 years down the line that <laughs> at some point I'll do. Yeah. But that was another one that uh, the first song I heard that in that style, which was probably 20 years ago as well was um a song called esclavo yamo by pasteles verdes and i again i grew up hearing um like the more traditional side of a bolero which is you know everything from uh like kind of an acoustic trio singing their asses off and you know to it's music in the corner of a mexican restaurant to whatever i grew up with that stuff all around me but when i remember hearing that song by pasteles verdes it sounded like a Wu-Tang sample. I mean, it sounded like a RZA. I was like, I remember right. driving in Austin and listening to the uh, one of the Spanish stations and was uh, I was like, what the hell is this? This is crazy. Because it was like, yeah. if you if you really just listen to the song, the form and the chord progression, it was a boleto, but it had so much reverb and it was yeah. so psychedelic. Yeah. It was crazy. It was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. And I had to pull over and was like, I called the radio station. I was like, what is this? And I, I hit the stores like the next day, all the, and they, <laughs> I mean, we had, we have like the, at that time, the famous record store here was Waterloo records, but they ain't carrying yeah. Los Pasteles Verdes Grandes yeah. Exitos. You know, like I had to go to the mom and pop shops. <laughs> yeah. And that just led me down the line, you know, like discovering Angeles Negros and even deeper. I'm, again, I'm still, learning every time i talk to one of the singers or somebody else they're like oh have you checked out such and such that did one single in 1972 yeah uh, just became an obsession too and just during the pandemic i i um you know i have all these ideas but during the pandemic i finally had time I was like i'm gonna just go ahead okay. and crank this out and uh yeah the yeah. singers have been amazing because i mean there's a lot of incredible singers out there that sing in spanish but it's a particular style and like feel that they have to have to do this even though we did we did nothing like tr in the traditional sense uh yeah. you know this was all very uh modern and kind of uh psyched out but like they still need to know under to feel that style so there was like i talked yeah. to a lot of singers that were like that i'm fans of that's a fan of that speak spanish but i'm like no they I, and or they would be like you know honestly this is like a little out of our comfort zone so uh, sure sure specific melodic sense and absolutely sense. you yeah. know and uh so yeah man that that'll be uh, uh comes out june 3rd uh the second single Dang, um, is awesome, out now man. with gabriel garcon montano and he's a he's a force too so man it's just been a blast like it's just again another uh another record just kind of love letter to to stuff that inspires me and and got you on a song with um angelica garcia and, oh i uh, can't wait man That's yeah so man she, and she's a great she's a, another forest man she's a singer she lives in la now and uh, uh she's insane dang well i love what you 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 were saying just a second ago how just talking in talking to these singers and just people turning you on to you know other other records that you don't mm -hmm. know about yet 
that's such an important thing that I feel like a lot of kids in the age of Spotify and, mm -hmm. and the internet is sort of lost. Like that's how a lot of us our age found out about music was talking to the guy up the street that was older than us or mm -hmm. someone's older sister or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's such an important thing just to get out and talk to people, people doing music, people who love music, and you're going to find out about all kinds of interesting stuff. Absolutely, man. I'm fine. I'm still discovering, you know, music to this day, man. You know, it's, yeah. it's like every day I, I'm finding stuff. And then, you know, the Spotify thing does make it easier to like sure. quickly save something now. You know, I've been better yeah. about doing that of like saving, Yeah. you know, digital. That's what I do. Things. I hear about yeah. something and then I'll save it on mm -hmm. Apple. I do Apple mm -hmm. Music, but I'll do, I'll save it in a playlist. So I'm like, don't forget about that. But it's it's nonstop, man. <laughs> I do I do all of them now, man. I signed up for Tidal, Apple Music, and Spotify. I I was kind of yeah. thinking about it, like you know, whatever. I don't even know what Spotify costs, like fifteen dollars. Yeah. I was thinking, like, I used to buy, you know, between CDs and vinyl, like, I used to spend so much money every month on buying music. Yeah. That like, if I can't pay more than like, so they're like fifteen dollars each or whatever. I'm like, yeah, forty five dollars to. I don't know. It just feels like doing my part, you know, like yeah. I, I can, because I remember back in the day it was like, Oh, well, Jay-Z's only on title. I was like, well, I'll sign up for title. Yeah. And, uh, cause I can't lug my CDs around, but I'm like, man, that's really <laughs> not like fit under $50 to support all three streaming services. That's not that expensive, you no, know, like not at all. Two, three CDs used to cost you that. So, yeah. Now we just got to get those CEOs to pay the artists more. Well, that's how I justify it. We too. deserve like, it. Yeah, I know. I know, man. It's it's super messed up, but I do. That's how I justify it. I'm like, at least I'm paying yeah. all of them, you know? Hell yeah, man. You're some, you're doing well beyond your part in supporting music, man. Trying. <laughs> well, Adrian, thanks so much for spending time with me today, man. I so appreciate you doing this. And thanks uh, for having me, man. Got lots of love for you. And uh, I'm people are going to love hearing all these stories from you. So thanks again, brother. Thanks, Dan. Thanks again, yeah, man. man. Can't wait to hear the new record, and uh, we'll talk soon. For sure, dude. All right, Adrian. You, See you, brother. Bye. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conduit. The Conduit is brought to you by Crew S Studio and DanUbeProductions.com. Many thanks to the folks at Squadcast, Polymash, Captivate, We Edit Podcasts, Universal Audio, Audio-Technica, Shure, and Avid. Extra special thanks to my brothers from other mothers, Scott Power and Bill Coulter. And last but not least, go check out Soul Pitman, my hand-picked music playlists on notrealart.com. Until next time, this is Dan Ubik, signing off.